God is saying, hey, I want to get your attention. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today, we've got Tracy. Good morning. And Eric. Good morning. And Karen. Hello. Hello, everybody. Eric, you've got a graduate now, don't you? I do. Yes, of last night. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the times are a changing for us all. I think. Well, eh, the other no, Tracy, you still got one in the house. So I do got one coming up still karen's kids are long since moved out which makes i'm old i was gonna say that makes karen sound old but (laughs) she's not that she she be nice nice (laughs) you would never believe that karen has grown children who have already left the nest how's that (gasps) that's better there we go there we go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I had to think my way through that because I will probably see Karen face to face later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's 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 kind of fun. I got. Uh, let's see. My uh, good friend of mine, his his son is going to be graduating here soon to too. actually his party is he's get. Yeah, they're doing that tomorrow. So um, it's just interesting seeing all these kids grow up that we've watched since they were little and. You know, it's just a little piece of our lives at the moment. I know a lot of people, probably a lot of our listeners have already had gone through this in their lives, but um, you just can't, you just can't help taking note of these things as, as things change so much. Like my oldest, he's been coming to work with me for the last week. And um, as uh, I lost my apprentice this week, he, he went to work for a lumber company. And so I brought my son in and he's proven to be good help. And, uh, just, uh, just a different, just a different way of doing things lately. So, um, I don't know. It's just an interesting well, the, way to see life go. The passage of time is shocking. I, I got in the mail a graduation announcement for Eric's daughter, mm-hmm. and I met her when she hadn't even started kindergarten yet. And mm-hmm. so I thought, well, that was weird. How did that happen? So I took a picture of the announcement and sent it to my daughter, who went. Wait, what? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's 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 crazy. Yeah, I keep looking at my oldest, and I think of the times when I used to, when I first held him, I had his, I think I had the crook, his butt in the crook of my elbow and his head in my hand, and now yeah. I can't, I can't hardly lift the kid. He's he's almost as big as me anymore. So it's yeah, the passage of time, like you say, seeing the things change and move on and. And uh, just keeps it just just keeps rolling. Well, speaking of continuing to keep rolling, let's get into our discussion today. We are in First Kings. We're going to start in chapter sixteen, and we've been seeing a quick succession of kings through the area. I call it the area of Israel because it's really it's it's what we knew as Israel has split into two parts now we have the northern kingdom still called israel and then we have the southern kingdom which is uh, consists of the uh, areas of judah and benjamin and it's uh it's got it's been kind of fascinating to watch just how quickly things changed with 
Israel, with the tribes of Israel, and I guess we'll call it that, uh, over over time, once we had King Solomon, and then things just, just very quickly fell apart. We've had just quick successions of kings. They don't seem to last very long. And we had left off talking about this new newer king named Baasha. He had conspired against King, I think it was Asa, in Judah. And King Asa in Judah only lasted a couple of years, and he was conspired against by this guy Baasha mm-hmm. in chapter Judah. King Asa, he reigned for, I think, 41 years. Oh, I'm re- I'm hmm. I might have to go back and look at that. I have to look at that because my notes I have written down that he lasted two years, but um, I may have I have may have misnoted that. But at any rate, he get, got conspired against by this guy Bayasha, and Bayasha went so far as to go back and kill the entire house of Jeroboam. So, um, <laughs> okay, he, hang on a second. So, so I think where your confusion came up is verse six. Um, it says in the twenty-sixth year of Asa, king of Judah, well, Elah, and- son of Basha, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Terza two years. So, okay. Asa was kind of a continual presence in the background yeah. for quite Asa, a while. In sixteen thirteen, it says he reigned for forty-one years. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, so Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the forty-first year of his reign. Yeah. Okay. Hey, what do I know? Early, the guy that Bayasha killed reigned for two years, and that was in Israel. Yeah. Okay, so I missed something there. At any rate, we get into chapter sixteen, and Bayasha is is the king now of Israel. See, that's where I was. See, right. there's a difference between Judah and Israel, and I think there were there, and and that's where I was getting confused because Bayasha is the king of Israel, not of Judah, and he. Reigned for like 24 years. But once we get into 1 Kings chapter 16, we're told that Baasha's house is going to have the same fate as Jeroboam's house, which was, um, it wasn't a good fate. Let's just say that. <laughs> and But this is because we're told that Baasha had caused Israel to sin and because he had killed the whole house of Jeroboam. So Baasha was not a great dude. We don't get a lot of information about him. We get, we get a, we just, we start just, it's just this quick succession, this quick timeline of different kings. He gets replaced by a guy named Elah. Elah doesn't last very long. He's killed and and replaced by a guy named Zimri. Uh, Zimri takes him out while he's, takes Elah out while he's getting drunk in a party, sounds like. And Zimri kills the entire house of Baasha, including his friends and relatives. So not a great time to, not it. This is a time when it's not good to be the king. Right. So, so Zimri reigns. Well, he lasts a whole whopping seven days before the people of Israel just start to conspire against him, and they name their own king Omri, who's commander of the army. And Zimri takes this so badly that he goes into the king's house and burns the whole thing down on himself, and he dies. He he's uh. You know, throwing a little tantrum there, I guess. I don't know. But so then this Omri, he reigns in Israel. He divides Israel further into two parts called Tibni and Omri. Or actually, Tibni and Omri, I think, were people who were were, uh, kind of in charge of those areas. But places tend to get named after the people who are in charge. So Tibni and Omri. Omni kinds of wins out. Tibni dies. 
Omni reigns for 12 years. And now we get something that actually is kind of interesting through all this. He builds a city called Samaria. Samaria is a name that is uh, should be familiar to most of us here. Samaria comes into play pretty pretty heavily in the time of Jesus, especially for a couple of the stories. We have the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, we have the story of the woman at the well. She's in Samaria. And we're told that Omri did evil, like so many other kings before him, and followed in the ways of Jeroboam. So all this idolatry, all of this bad... Um, just this this bad seed of religion that's just floating around in Israel, what was once like the poster child for, for what God wanted to see in the world, or was supposed to be. Omri is followed by another king, Ahab, who reigns in Israel for 22 years. We're told that he's more evil than any of the kings before him, and he marries a woman named Jezebel, which who we will end up talking about more later. But this Jezebel... Um, she gets him to start worshiping Baal in a temple that he built that he built for her in Samaria. And so this kind of makes me wonder, you know, we have this temple right there in Samaria, not terribly far from Jerusalem. I mean, easily seemed like it was easily a walkable distance. And I wonder if this maybe is the reason that Samaria down the road gets to be have such a bad name um, among all of the Jewish people of the time of Jesus, where it's just they're really looked down on and as secondary in the culture and in the area. And maybe this has something to do with it, just sort of going all the way back to the roots of the town itself, where it, it just it just started out bad, you know. Yeah, and, I think it's it's that it's the uh, old feud kind of thing. And it's a little bit difficult for us to process that in the same way. I mean, we think, come on, guys, get over it. It was a thousand years ago. Well, you look at the Middle East now, and uh, you've got the Jews and the Arabs going at it, and we're like, okay, it's been 4,000 years. Like, can we put this behind us now? No, actually, was the answer to that. It it's, uh, has not turned out to be humanly possible to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right that Samaria, the, the fact that it was born out of a separate kingdom, that the kingdom... Uh, under Jeroboam was kind of founded, basically the, the underpinnings of it were idolatry and a desire to make their own, cut their own path, so to speak. And then further, you know, I mean, Samaria is become kind of not just a city, but also a region and it its place, the, the tribes, because remember, there are 10 tribes of Israel who are up there in that northern kingdom. But during the Babylonian captivity, during the first part of it, they're the first ones to go into captivity and as what a lot of rulers did at the day is they would take out the native people, put in their own people so that they would kind of colonize at that time. And so the Jews of Judea felt like the people in Samaria weren't even real Jews. They weren't even part of the 10 tribes. Well, some of them were probably, but a lot of them were not. So it, it just gets murkier and murkier. But yeah, this is this is where that starts. Yeah. You know what? And I had written down too that I wonder if too, it was just a little bit of that, you know, they had departed so far, and that was kind of the breaking point to them. Not so much like a, almost like a rock bottom, but that's where they divided so much, and that was kind of the sticking point that says, you know what, this branch did not go the way God intended, and this is what the outcome that we have. 
this is the example of it. These are the people from it. And I just think that was like kind of just the, the, the pain in the side of where they, why they were so mistreated and, and thought of so differently. Yeah. Do you remember how we've mentioned before, <laughs> particularly you, Eric, just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean we're supposed to emulate it. <laughs> yeah. So um, when I, when I lived in Alaska, I bred dogs. And since I bred dogs, I knew a, a few other people who bred dogs. And one of them, one of these girls had named her, she had gotten together with a friend of theirs when what was going to be their prime breeding bitch was born. And like, this is going to be like the head of our bloodline. And what do we want to name this girl? And they had named this puppy. So there was the name of the of the stable, no, kennel, there we go. There was the name of the kennel, but then they named her Jezebel. And yeah. I was like, um, why? I mean, <laughs> why? And they said, and they said, oh, she's in the, she was some kind of, I don't really know her history, but she was some kind of heroic queen in the, in the Bible. And I was like, <laughs> uh, n- no, she was just a queen in the Bible. And they were like, oh, so I kind of give, you know, the 32nd version of the backstory. And they're like, oh, well, I just remembered the name from that it was in the Bible and, and I wanted this girl to be a queen. And so I thought that since it was in the Bible, it was automatically good. And I was like, yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Kind of funny. No, she's not just, just, just a queen. She was like the absolute opposite of being heroic in any, in any sense of the word. Not so much but... famous, but infamous. <laughs> she's infamous. Infamous. <laughs> <laughs> Our mo- our movie geek fans will will get that one, which means probably like one point five listeners. <laughs> so, so as we get into um, we we bounce around a bit here. We uh, jump over to Second Chronicles chapter seventeen. We meet a guy named Jehoshaphat, and he is ruling in Judah. Man, I'm going to get mixed up with this between Judah and Israel, but I think we stick with Judah for a bit. Now, Jehoshaphat, we're told, see, I can't even keep the names right, you guys. Asa, no, Jehoshaphat, who are we talking about? Jehoshaphat's in 2 Chronicles 17. Asa has been king. Yes, that's what I'm trying to get to. Jehoshaphat is the king in 2 Chronicles 17 over Judah, and we're told that he walked in the ways of his father David. And specifically, it's talking about how he did not seek the Baals. I think this is maybe in, in a stark contrast to the king of Israel at the time, Ahab, who was very, very much into it. But we're told that because he did not seek the Baals and because he walked in the ways of David, that he, the Lord, it says, established the kingdom. And we're told that Jehoshaphat, he took delight in the ways of the Lord. He went and he removed high places and images. We might remember that some of the other kings of the time, even the kings in Judah and I don't know. In my mind, Judah kind of gets put up here as the good guys and Israel sort of as the bad guys. But we'll see that even that that gets muddled over time. But um, a lot of those kings, like why, while they even were uh, trying to follow God, they didn't necessarily go out and try to clean house and get all of the idolatry out. They might have gotten people to turn more towards God, but they didn't necessarily take down the high places of those other gods. Or they started and never never finished. Mhm. Mhm. Now, he he did something interesting here. He sent some leaders with some levites 
to teach the law to the cities of Judah. So he got together a bunch of guys, Levites, uh, a couple of priests, to go around to the cities of Judah and and teach the law. We've seen times in the, and maybe not, maybe we haven't gotten to it yet, but there are times when the law of God is just completely forgotten in the nation of Israel. I mean, times when, I mean, remember we see, we saw the Ark of the Covenant didn't even sit in the tabernacle for, for years. So for uh, Jehoshaphat to come along and actually go to actively teach the people of the area uh, the, the, the laws of God, I found that interesting. I thought that was kind of a very, I don't know, very proactive way to do it. Well, yeah. okay. So if you think back on the course of time, when at the original fall in the Garden of Eden, God was there to directly teach Adam and Eve what to do, right? So there was a direct being to human training of what the law meant, and that included the sacrificial system, right? Yeah. So, you know, everything, and, and then apparently there didn't need to be a retraining until when's the next time we see that the there's the the 10 there's the 10 commandments right so mm -hmm. the israelites get taken into captivity and then they come out but they've been there for a minute and they've been living in a, this other society that's completely different so god gets them clear of the egyptians and then stops them and says okay we're going to reintroduce you to the law right so that comes first and then there's through Moses, there's a, a sort of a slow restatement and rewriting of the Mosaic law as well. And then it seems like to me, when I think back on the Old Testament, it seems like there'll be a phase of time where everybody kind of knows what's going on. And then there'll be some kind of major lapse where the law disappears. And then when it's time to reinst reinstitute it, somebody has to sit down and be like, okay, how are we supposed to do this? You know, and they kind of go over it again. Mm -hmm. You know, and I wrote I down. I think we're just in, in one of those. Yeah. I wrote down that it was one of those lead by examples that they had seen so many bad examples that I wonder if it was just one of those leadership things where he said, you know what, let me let me go forward as a leader and show them exactly what I'm talking about and where we need to go and where we need to be. Yeah, it was a very proactive way to, to go. I mean, we wouldn't, I mean, here, we wouldn't see this, something like this happening with, with a government, at least not in, not in the United States. We wouldn't see a government initiative to go out and try to teach people the moral or, you know, the little laws of God. Uh, but for a, for a nation that was supposed to be sort of a theocracy, it was, uh, it was a, just interesting to see resources put towards this kind of thing to, to, to actively combat um, all of the idolatry and all of the other things that had snuck their ways in. Yeah, so if we look at um, the results of this stuff, people say, well, there's a lot of talk these days about scientific method and um, looking for proof and evidence and so on. So if we look at the kings who, as, as uh, Chronicles and Kings say, obeyed what God said to do, you look at the longevity of their kingdoms, and the references to the, and they had peace and, and so on, you look at, well, which one works? I mean, if, if you just kind of, if we just kind of back out, if we could line up these two timelines of uh, Asa and Jehoshaphat, who more or less followed God, they, they had their issues, Asa did at the end especially, but um, if we look at the number of kings 
that cycle through Israel during the time Judah has two kings and all the trouble Israel has during this time. I mean, I'd rather be living in Judah, hands down. You know, no question. So, so I think it's worth looking at saying, well, what works? And that's a conversation that I've had with, with my kids. It's like, well, when we look at the Bible and, the, and God says, do this, in a few places he says, don't do that, what works in life? You know, does it, would society work better if, let's suppose, people didn't steal? Well, does it? I think, yeah, it does. If there was no murder, if it's like, no, nope, you, you got to get control of yourself and settle this a, a different way, um, would society work better? Yeah, I think so. And, and so on. And I think this is one of those cases where we can look at it and say, well, what works and what doesn't work? And we're just about to roll into Ahab and uh, Elijah. And Elijah shows up and says, yeah, uh, Ahab, this doesn't work. You're just about to find out. Yeah, so things are going well for Jehoshaphat to the point that uh, the the surrounding areas, the the Philistines and Arabians, are specifically pointed out. They start bringing gifts to him. Um, it's just kind of showing here that, like you're saying, Eric, it works. And so when when Jehoshaphat is actually following God, the nation of Judah is doing well. It's doing very well. We're even told that they are not even being attacked. So. Um, not not just not being attacked, but they're actually being supported by by others around him. And uh, even though he's building up quite the army, he's got quite the uh, yeah, quite uh, uh, like over a million men. I mean, you know, that's a relatively small area of the world, and he's got over a million men uh, as, as military might. But it doesn't sound like he really needs it. And that's that's just men, and that's besides what he's already got in the fortified cities. But while things are going well for Jehoshaphat, uh, they are not going so well for Ahab. We get introduced here to Elijah. Now, that name is is uh, familiar to many of us, Elijah being a prophet. He goes to Ahab. Now, this is back up in Israel, and you guys keep me, keep me straight on all this, Israel versus Judah. Uh, he goes to Ahab and tells him that there will not be any rain, says dew or rain, and he says, except at my word. So until I say so, which is an interesting uh, kind of way to put it, because Ahab doesn't take well to it. But um, until I say, until I tell you differently, uh, we're going to have a drought. And God tells Elijah then to hide. Because, you know, kings did not like being told that things were going to go poorly for them. And yeah, who does? I, I've noticed that hasn't changed in time. People just... <laughs> If they're doing the wrong thing and somebody calls them on it, instead of saying, oh, you know what, you're right, they blame the messenger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so God tells Elijah to hide, sends him to the, the brook Cherith, says ravens are going to bring him food morning and evening, and he'll drink from the brook. So that's kind of an interesting thing. You'll run off and, and hide, and, and, and birds are going to bring you your food. Um, boy, that... It's going to take some trust on the part of Elijah, I would think, but he does it. He 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 runs off and and hides like he's told, and the birds bring him food just like they're supposed to. But eventually, that brook dries up because, after all, we are in a drought. Yeah, it's it's not just a a little bit of a rain drought. It's everything quits. The springs fail, and the rain fails, and this is this is the. 
upshot of what they had been warned about for years. Uh, I made some notes here of some earlier warnings. Uh, if you want to go back and read, we won't, I won't read the whole thing, but you can find in Deuteronomy chapter 11, 10 through 17, God is saying, I will give you rain. I'll read one verse, 11, this is Deuteronomy eleven fourteen. He will give you rain for your land in its season, the early and the latter rain. God is saying, hey, look, this is, I'm going to bless you with this. We see in Deuteronomy 20, 18, there's, we've talked about this little word, if, um, if you obey, if you obey, if you keep, if you obey the commandments, if you do not turn. And then in Deuteronomy 28, 15, if you do not obey, then all these curses go up. We remember that as Solomon is dedicating the temple in Judah, he specifically says, when you turn away and all this stuff happens, you know, people need to turn and pray. So this is, this is, a, this is a judgment. This is a judgment for the purpose of turning people around. Now, there's a difference between, I believe, our desire for vengeance on somebody, somebody cuts us off or does us wrong and we want to we want to hurt them or punish them and we see people do this with on the road i mean i saw that this week it was ridiculous one car cut off another truck and then the truck got ahead of the car and it was a diesel and so he shifted into low gear and would blow black smoke all over him and then the little red car would get in front of the truck and slow way down that's not for the purpose there's no good purpose mm. right they're just being mean to each other yeah. um god is bringing this drought to bring their attention. He's like, hey, y'all have missed the subtle hints. You've not listened to the other information. So now let's see what we can do to really get you to refocus. And God has said, you know, this is skips ahead in time, but I don't think God's character changes. In Ezekiel 18, 23, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Ezekiel 33, 11 is the same thing. Basically, his point is, I want you to turn. I want you to wake up and do the right thing. And that was the purpose of this severe drought more than a punishment. Like, oh, fine, you, you do me wrong, I'll do you wrong. Is God is saying, hey, I want to get your attention. Because let's note, a spoiler alert here, is this whole thing, as it ends in 18, Israel didn't turn before God brought the rain. I mean, they kind of did. They, they said, oh, the Lord, he is God. But they hadn't come to some kind of like slow realization of this. God in his grace says, I'm going to do this for you so that you know. Yeah, and it's an interesting contrast here to me with Elijah to the nation of Israel at the time where Israel was kind of ignoring all the things that they were supposed to have been doing, and Elijah's being called to very much um, rely on God, live kind of at God's mercy here, you know, being fed by birds. Mm-hmm. And when 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 the brook dries up, he's told to go to, Z- uh, see if I can pronounce this right, Zarephath. Yeah. And yep. just head to this town, and you're going to meet a widow, and she's going to take care of you. It's uh, an amazing story. It's a it lot is of- an amazing story. Uh, so he he like, okay, God. And he heads to this town, and he meets this widow. And we we get a picture here of what it was like for a widow 
this this is why it was it shows why it was so important for women to marry in that culture because we find this widow with a son and i don't think we're really given any indication of how old the son is but it doesn't sound like he's old enough to necessarily provide for his mother and himself so probably a young boy and they are they're on the brink of starvation yeah like literally the very brink because he says and this is okay so set some context here is he has been sent out of the country. He's no longer in Israel, and he's no longer in Judah. Ahab has been sending messengers and emissaries to every kingdom in the entire region, saying, if you find this guy, send him back to me. Because this is just amazing to me, is that Ahab thinks that it's Elijah doing this. He just can't kind of get his head around the fact that God stopped the rain. He's given a lot of credit to Elijah here. And so he's chasing Elijah down. Elijah leaves Israel. Now, notice where Elijah goes. It's Zarephath in where? Sidon. Interesting. Where does Jezebel come from? (laughs) Sidon. Okay, so here you've got the man of God going to the Sidonians, and you've got the queen Jezebel coming from the Sidonians to Israel. Kind of, they cross paths. And so... And when Jesus brings this up in the New Testament, he's like, hey, weren't there any women, um, any widows in Israel when, uh, when, there was a, uh, when there was a famine? Oh, man, that got people's hackles up big time. Because God was like, yeah, I'll reach out to people who are interested in, in talking to me. So he, Elijah shows up in this context. He's coming from Israel to this woman of a foreign nation, no doubt a foreign God, except the woman says this really interesting thing is that um, she says in verse 12, this is chapter 17, verse 12 of 1 Kings, he says, he says, hey, would you give me some, uh, some, some water and bread? And she said, quote, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a little oil and jug. She gives credit to God as a living God, which is Put again, put that in context because the the daughter of her king is now the queen of Israel has denied that the Lord is a living God, and here's this woman of Sidon saying, "Yeah, your God lives," and I'm going to tell you the truth. This we got the last little bit of food, and Elijah says, "Fix food for me first. Man, you talk about a test of faith. I wonder how she knew who he was. She like, knew. It's not like she saw him on the six o'clock news. I know. But somehow she knew, and she knew he was a messenger of God. Yeah. And I had to be a Holy Spirit, I guess, because you make a great point, Karen. How would she know? But mm-hmm. she she is tested because he says, do not fear, but first. And in verse 15, she says, she went and did as Elijah said, which is that test of faith is, wow, epic. You know, and I wonder, too, if, you know, since everybody was kind of looking at him, and I kind of associated this with a bounty. There was a bounty on his head, basically, throughout all the lands. And I'm wondering if, you know, she just happened to see it, and they kind of knew who to be on the lookout for. You know, was there a reward or something for him that, you know, might have keyed her into who he was? And maybe in a small, I mean, I don't know. I just, I have such a hard time. I see people every day. I don't know who they are. 
you know, I don't know who they are. The only reason they know who I am is because I'm I'm the resource. I'm listed on my job's website, you know, but they, they wouldn't recognize me if I wasn't in my office, if I wasn't doing my job, if I walked up to them on the street and needed something, I would just be a person. I don't know. Whatever. Hardly the point of the story. I just got a little sidetracked on it. No, it is interesting, though. You you do wonder how how did she know? Because she um, she's very clear, clearly knows, you know, who is God is. I mean, did she know he was a prophet? Did she know that he was, quote unquote, Elijah? I don't know. But she definitely seems to have some concept of where he's from and what he's all about. Yeah. And and yeah, when he asks her for for a little bread and water, he's literally he's literally asking her. For the last of what she has. Yeah. Over yeah. her child. Over herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you know. I, I, you look at that at the surface. And you'd be like. Wow. What an egotistical thing for you to ask for. But it, it seems like maybe he was probably directed by God to ask for this. And um, he tells her. Don't be afraid. Just bring me some first. Then go make some for you and your son. And and um, but he says. The, the, the flower won't be used up. And your oil won't run dry until God sends rain. So definitely, like, like Eric said, a uh, huge test of faith here. I think we forget, I do, that this is the state that we are supposed to always be existing in. Yeah. Is, is total and complete trust in God. The total. We get very self-sufficient in our modern society, relying on ourselves. And then we run out of toilet paper. Like, oh, no, we don't have any toilet paper. I mean, we're in a pretty fragile place in so many ways, more ways than we than we realize. And I believe God is asking us. It's a theme through the whole Bible is that we are to be relying on him, him alone. Like you, Adam and Eve, you've got the tree of life. There's only one tree of life, and they were supposed to have access to that reliance on God. You've got Noah. Facing the flood. Well, how's Noah going to make it through the flood? Only with God. You, we've got Israel fleeing from Egypt. How does Israel flee from Egypt successfully? Only through complete faith in God. They get into the desert. How are they going to eat? Only through complete reliance on God. We see this happen again and again and again. And I think Karen has mentioned this. It's in, in Revelation, uh, I want to say, 3, the church of Laodicea. The problem that they have is they're like, yeah, we're pretty good. We got this. And God says, you, you don't understand. You think you're all these great things, but you're actually, you know, poor, blind, and naked. And you need things from me. And I don't think that that total, complete, absolute, like down to the last morsel of bread you eat, reliance on God, that is how we are supposed to live daily. Well, the widow does, as Elijah says, and it actually does work out for them somehow. They never run out of flour. They never run out of oil. They eat for for many days. It just it just keeps. I don't. I, I'd be so interested to see something like this happen. You know, you see, you know, a handful of flour that ekes out for. Well, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't sound like it ekes out. It sounds like they eat just fine for quite a while. Uh, that you know, the the loaves and the fishes. That, that Jesus provides later, you know, you have a tiny basket of food and you feed thousands of people with it. I would love to see what something like that looks like. You know, do you 
do you do you see it replenish itself? <laughs> Does it replenish when you happen to look away and you look back and oh wow, look at that, there's more. You know, I you just don't think I wouldn't be if that was my flower jar jar. Don't think I wouldn't be peeking into it about 20 times an hour going, when how, how, how? When does this happen? Can I see it? Yeah. Yeah, I want to see it. Yeah, I want to see how I want to see what that kind of thing looks like. What is it? Does it? Yeah, just I don't know. I mean, does is it like you reach in and you pull it out and there's just as much there as there was before? Yet you have a handful of flour. You know? Yeah, I'm, I would love to see something like this happen and see, just try to uh, just contemplate it and see how something like that would work out. What does that tell you about what's going on in our world that's beyond our plane of vision? Like all of these stories that we've heard, and there's modern stories of miracles and interventions and things like that. What does that tell you about what's actually happening in the world compared to what we can see? A lot. Oh, yeah. You know, there's there's so much more going on than we can see and understand and comprehend. Um, I I just have to. I mean, I'm probably not as good at it as Elijah, but definitely have to try to just just trust that things are going to be fine. Things are going to work out. And by say fine and work out, I mean, I don't, you know, who knows what that actually looks like, you know, because as we've, we've done it, we've done enough reading to know that things that work out and are fine on the surface don't look like they're working out and are fine, but in the long run, they're for the better good, you know? Exactly. Um, I mean, let's not forget that Elijah is God's called one, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he lives in hiding in, in, in the, I, I don't know. I picture it like the desert in Utah. I don't know what it really looked like by himself for how long it wasn't like overnight or two or three nights or a week or whatever. He goes at this. And until we get to chapter 18, he's doing this for three and a half years. How long was he in Zarephath? Don't know. But this is the idea. This, this goes against that prosperity gospel that, well, if you just were doing God's will, everything would be awesome. You'd have your own Learjet and you'd have perfect health and you'd have just th- that doesn't line up with what we actually see play out in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I read this and I'm fascinated by it, but I don't go out expecting that the same thing would happen for me. You know, if the flower jar runs low it very well might run out for me. Uh, God, could God make it last? He could, really? I don't, you know, I don't know. I have to, I just have to trust that whatever's going to happen is what is supposed to happen. And yeah, Elijah's put into a unique situation where he is being sustained through this. Well, not every, and see, here we turn right around, not even turn around, we just keep going down the same pathway and we see that it, that not all is going well for the woman and her son because her son becomes sick, uh, really sick, and even dies. And um, the woman seems to want to place some blame on Elijah. I think she's just acting out of grief. I mean, you know, she's been she's been getting taken care of while he's been in the house with her. Um, but um, Elijah takes charge here. He takes the boy up into his own room. And praise to God. It says he lays on. I don't. I don't know what this looks like. I guess he's like. Sounds like he just like literally lays down on on the boy and like puts his head to the boy's head and and just starts praying to God. And even here, it sounds like Elijah might be a little. Um, he's maybe questioning a bit what's happening. He says, "Have you brought tragedy on the widow by killing her son?" You know, after all that he's been through and been sustained through this, he's he, even even Elijah is 
is kind of questioning what's going on here. Why, why, why feed these people if we're if you're just going to let the kid die? Well, there's a grief, there's a grief reaction there too. I mean, oh, I can't sure. imagine these this little group of people didn't become close. Yeah, yeah. Now he says uh, so. He stretches out and he's got an interesting. He says something interesting to him, sir. He says, "Let this child's." soul come back to him now that's the uh new king james translation i looked up a few other translations here the niv says let this boy's life return to him english standard version says let this child's life come into him again um i looked up to see what word was being translated as soul here because we've talked here before about death and what happens when we die and um it's a long, I mean, that's a whole kind of long study in itself. But that word soul, the word that gets translated soul, is the Hebrew word nefesh. Nefesh, which essentially just means a breathing creature. Uh, and abstractly, that, that term is used to convey vitality. And it's from the root word nafash, which just means to breathe. So I think we've talked here before about how the breath comes into the body and makes the, makes the body alive. The idea of this soul that exists separately from the body and contains everything that uh, we are, we think we, 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 you know, our personality and that kind of stuff. That's not a concept that comes from the Bible. That's more from, from the Greek. And so here, when he's talking about this, let this, let this child's nephesh come back to him. He's literally just talking about life. He's talking about life. He's talking about breath. He's talking about whatever it is that makes us, quote unquote, alive. Right. And it's interesting that when we first see a living being, it's, it isn't this thing that is Adam's. It's God's. God breathes into him God's breath and Adam becomes alive. He had all the dirt there. But it's God's breath that makes him alive. What is God's breath that makes us alive? I have no idea. Don't have a theory either. But it's God's. And he's the one who holds it. It's not ours. And I think that's a thing that we, where we kind of go a little bit wrong. I see, I see shades of the book of Job here. Not just here, but later as Elijah runs. Um, everything's attributed to God. Even the bad things. Yeah. Did God want to kill this widow's son? I seriously doubt it. Something good came from it because she uh, she becomes, as she puts it, a solid convert at the end of chapter 17. But even the bad things that happen are attributed to God. All of them. Yeah. But, so. and, and you can't. You can't misunderstand. I mean, that makes sense because if you think about their their living situation, they've been living. This is like the Israelites in the manna. There's been a daily miracle that sustains them, that defies the laws of nature, and yet there's a death. So you're 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 living in the presence of supernatural intervention. It is what is keeping you alive, and yet this death is allowed. I mean, it would be pretty hard not to attribute that to God. Mm-hmm. Like God, you're taking care of all this other stuff in this exact same situation. You, you didn't take care of this too. You know, I wonder too if that if it's once again we just we don't see the big picture. We don't see what's going on around it and this is God showing you know that he is ultimately in control. 
And, you know, I, I thought back to, to Lazarus and just that faith part that, you know what, God knew he was sick, allowed him to, to die, allowed him to stay in the grave for four days only to show yep. his true power. Yep. To say, you know what, you did show this faith. You did show this. Now this is, you know, one of those, I don't know if it's a step up, but of your faith. What's going to happen with the death? And I think it just showed his power manifest. Mm-hmm. One of the times we get to see a, a huge miracle happen here. And as Elijah's praying for this boy to be revived, he does come back to life. And it it brings this woman to recognize that Elijah, well, it says that she recognizes Elijah as a man of God. And I'm thinking, well, haven't you been paying attention? But um, maybe maybe she needed more. I don't know. But um, this definitely, this definitely would put. Um, it, it it would certainly change the perspectives of her and anybody around her that knew her and her son, because of course everybody around there is going to know that her son was sick and dying and dead, and and came back to life. I mean, that's uh, there's just no way that that kind of news doesn't get around. I'd be curious to know, and and this isn't something that we can know. But I'd be curious to know what the timeline was with all this of like how how the child's death fit into the timeline of the famine. And the reason I'm saying that is because like I like I made the comparison to the Israelites and manna here a minute ago, like they had the manna for for so long. And then after a while, they kind of got used to it. And then they started to complain about it. And they were like, well, Mm. I mean, all we have is this supernatural intervention perfectly balanced nutritional gift from god to eat every day we you know we miss we miss meat and fresh vegetables and we miss other things right and so what to me would be an astounding miracle oh my goodness food fell from the sky oh my goodness food appeared on the ground appeared in my flower jar you know what i mean Mm -hmm. after a while loses its impact (laughs) And then and then it takes the death of her child in order for there to be a statement in here that she recognized Elijah as a man of God. Like, (laughs) yeah, that's a good point, because we don't we're not there's no indication here, no reason for us to think that the flower had started running out. He was we were specifically told that the flower was going to last until there was rain. And uh, we hadn't been told at that point in the in the reading yet that that had run out. So. You had one miracle still, uh, still sustaining them, uh, yet yet the boy got sick and died while the while that other miracle was still happening. So yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Does that ever make we, you wonder what miracles could possibly be going on in our lives that we've become so accustomed to we don't even notice them anymore? Well, I mean, we you know there there was somebody a while back. Um, I think he was a comedian, and I don't know that if he's still in the good graces of of society anymore, but he was talking about how everything is amazing and everybody is miserable. You know, talk about how, how you can be on an airplane. First of all, you're on an airplane. You're, you're hurtling through the sky in a tube of steel. (laughs) Um, And, you know, people complaining about, you know, the the flight took off too slow. Uh, You could be on, you could be on your phone on Wi-Fi while you're there. And be complaining that that the internet is running, is, is bogging down. Um, 
you know, I mean, just the craziest things, the most amazing advancements we have in our lives, and we still manage to complain about them because we've gotten so used to having them. And it's yeah. fascinating because even, you know, through our lives, just the advancements in technology, we've seen things that we, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, we didn't even, we would have never imagined some of the things we have now. I mean, right. the idea of the four of us sitting in four different houses, uh, recording something that can literally go around the world, um, and I'm doing it on a computer that that is... I don't even have a wire hooked up to an internet. I mean, the idea of an internet is is crazy. It's it's a you know we've got wireless internet and and laptop computers and and so many things that we just take for granted. And when they go bad, we just go ah, why does my life suck so bad? You know. But this and, is where this is where that Laodicea thing fits in. You know, uh-huh. we're sitting back, we're looking around at the trappings of our life going, well, I'm rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. And God's like, no, you don't have the baseline. You don't have character. You don't have faith in me. You haven't been purified. Like, you can't do anything. Like, the things that you're valuing aren't what I value. Yeah. Yeah, and to that point, that's essentially what God is trying to say to the nation of Israel. It's like, look, I'm the one who provides this stuff for you. Baal was held up as the one that provided the rain. This is this was a direct. Um, I'm not sure what they call it in in gang culture. As I'm about a little bit removed from that, but basically the challenges. It's like, oh yeah, well I'll challenge you to whatever. However that goes down, this is God's challenge to Baal, saying, yeah, okay, so you guys think that Baal brings the rain? Let's see what Baal can do. Watch this, and then there's no rain. And so this was a real-life lab test for an entire nation. We go from the very, very small, you know, comparing, contrasting micro to macro here. We've got this one one woman who's, who's in Samaria. Now we've got an entire nation in Israel who's suffering. And then Elijah just shows up again. He just says, after many days, beginning of chapter 18, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Well, there hadn't been any kind of repentance or reformation or anything happening in Israel. This is just God's mercy saying, all right, this is enough, and we're going to get some, we're going to establish this. We get a cool uh, introduction here to Obadiah, who was, I guess, the steward of Ahab's um, uh, house in Israel. And while Ahab was doing all this bad stuff and Jezebel was doing worse things, um, she killed a bunch of prophets of God, which... Again, how come that gets allowed? Don't know. Right. But it's in God's, that's in God's court. But um, this guy does what he can do to save a uh, hundred priests. Apparently he stashes 50 in one cave and 50 in a different cave somewhere, and he delivers food from the king's house to these guys and keeps them alive. So Elijah shows up to Obadiah. Because Obadiah and, and Ahab are personally going out into the kingdom trying to find any bit of water to save what they can of the royal stable animals. And Elijah says, all right, go tell Ahab that, um, that I'm going to see him today. Obadiah has this kind of interesting, like, no, no, why are you picking on me? What did I do wrong? Because <laughs> as soon as I go and tell Ahab that you're here, because he's been looking for you for three and a half years, as soon as I tell you, you're going to disappear again. And and then he's going to kill me. And 
Elijah says, no, nope, I won't disappear. I give you a promise that, um, that I'll be here when, when you bring Ahab back, which is, a, again, it's, a, it's a just a, it's an interesting little story that happens, but it happens, as, as Elijah said, uh, Obadiah goes and gets Elijah, I mean, I'm sorry, Ahab, and Ahab shows up, and Ahab, it's very interesting, because when we see Obadiah greet Elijah, he says in verse 7, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? And the first thing Ahab says is, is it you, troubler of Israel? (laughs) (laughs) And second, what we talked about before is it's when we've done wrong, we blame the messenger. And and that's exactly what Ahab does here. And and, um, Elijah shoots right back, says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And he just tells the king what to do. All right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, and you're going to meet me on Mount Carmel. And Ahab's like, okay, whatever you say. It's really kind of interesting because Ahab has been looking for this guy for three and a half years to kill him. And as soon as Elijah shows up, he goes like, okay, this is what you're going to do. And Ahab just, he just does it. Right. He, he really points out, he's like, you have forgotten the commandments of God. You're going the totally wrong way. You've been following the Baals. And he places a challenge. And this is, oh man, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Just have the prophets of Baal and Asherah meet me on Mount Carmel. All, the, all of these prophets and children of Israel gather on the mountain. And Elijah, he puts this challenge out. It's like, decide right now. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the Lord or are you going to follow Baal? Let's do something. Let's let's prepare two sacrifices. We're going to prepare two bulls. We're going to get them all ready to go, but we're not going to put them on any kind of fire. And then each of us is going to call on our God and see whose God will answer by a fire. And he lets the prophets of Baal go first. And I don't know how, you know, it sounds like they start in the morning and they start calling on Baal and they're, they're praying, calling out what, whatever. And of course, I mean, you're probably not listening. It doesn't surprise any of us here. There's no answer from Baal. They, they try harder. They start leaping and jumping around and, and, um, you know, making a huge spectacle and nothing is happening. And Elijah mocks them. He says that, he starts asking him, he's like, well, what is, is Baal meditating or, you know, is he just busy? He gives all these, all these, uh, these situations, you know, is he traveling? Is he sleeping? He goes down a hard one too. He's like, eh, maybe he's in the bathroom. Like, he literally <laughs> that's, says that. that's one of the translations. Cause sometimes they'll just say sleeping, but then and there's others like maybe he's relieving himself. So it's like, yeah, literally maybe he's on the toilet. I mean, it just depends on the translation you read to see exactly what he what he's saying there. But um, he is not he's not trying to be kind. He is absolutely not trying to be diplomatic here at all. Uh, he is very much mocking them in their their religion, really putting it out there like what they're doing is foolish. And and and, you know, it has me kind of thinking, I'm wondering, you know, we've seen the bumper stickers, the uh, the code exist bumper stickers and it's all done with different symbols from different religions around the world i don't think elijah would have one of those on his bumper (laughs) 
I don't. Uh, he'd have the the other version that I've seen a couple times where it's contradict, very very much uh, standing out against um, against these, and it's you know it really kind of speaks to our the state of things today where yeah that whole coexist thing you know i don't know how do we how do we stand on that what what do you how are we called to react to these kind of things now well Um, okay diplomatic you know are we supposed to be diplomatic are we supposed to be bold um go ahead karen you seem like you have something to say time and a place i think time and a place because at the time their governments were based on their religion Mm-hmm. So that so religion and spirituality was part of government. Nowadays, we have separation of that. We have a civil government, and your spirituality is considered a private matter. Now, in the broad strokes, then it can be discussed as a public impact or this, that, or the other thing. But the way we have modern society structured, um, there's a lot more room for private thought, private belief, and expression of those beliefs. Whereas in this realm, it was all tied up with the actual government. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that we, we got to look at this in the context of what it is, is that we have in Israel at this point, state-sponsored religion. Yeah. And Elijah's calling out as apostate religion. So, when the state gets in the business of enforcing the religion of the flavor of the day, it goes badly. It just does. You know, there's a period of human history that we call the dark ages. And that was when, you know, the universal church was the one enforcing its version of spirituality on everybody else. It wasn't called the bright ages. And so I think that to, to the question, Matt, and it's a really important one, is I do believe it's important for us to stand up and say, this is right. This is truth. And things that are not this are not right and not truth. But I believe that we need to leave other people's consciences to make those choices. When we get in the business of saying, not only am I right, but I'm going to make you do the thing that I think is right, matters of conscience here, that we get into very troubled waters very fast and we end up with trouble. Now, this is, this is God specifically calling Elijah to say, yeah, all the things that I've been telling you forever that have been written down, I want you to go back to those things. He's not, he's not coming up with a new plan. He's not rewriting the plan. He's not saying, well, I used to tell you this, but now you got to do this. He's saying, no, the thing that I always told you that you should always do, that it was prophesied way back in Deuteronomy, that this is how this is supposed to go. And if you get off the rails, this is what will happen. He's, this, it's always the same thing. It's, it, it is absolutely dead bullet straight as to what they are supposed to be doing. And any deviation from that is wrong. In our day, I believe that conscience should have, we should have a choice we should allow other people to have those choices. If somebody wants to put the coexist bumper sticker on there and make those choices, I believe it is my duty, responsibility to let people do those things. In in Romans, it says, you know, let everyone be convinced in his own mind. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say go out there and kill them if they don't believe, agree with you. Anyways, I, I think that it's, it's a good point. And I think that to Karen's 
saying there's a time and a place and the situation that they found themselves in were conflicting theocracies, so to speak. And God was showing up and saying, okay, let's set the record straight. I think that's the key there is that it's a choice. And, and the minute we take that choice away from somebody, then we do cross that line. Well, Elijah lets them go on all day long. Like all day long. I mean, they've been going from morning till evening. And they're, I mean, they're dancing around. They start cutting themselves. I mean, everything they can do to try to get the attention of Baal. And of course, we're looking at this and Baal doesn't exist. Or, you know, I have, and I don't want to get too bogged down on this, but I have wondered at times if there was some sort of supernatural presence getting people to believe in these other gods. You know, was Satan in some way manifesting himself to 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 show people something tangible to look at, to ha- get them to believe that this is uh, a legitimate god? Oh, yeah. um, but in this case... He can. Mm-hmm. But in this case... He, there is nothing happening. There is nothing coming from Baal because, you know, Baal doesn't exist, you know. Well, but to your point, though, Matt, and I think this is a really important one, is that we saw when we read Job that Satan was allowed at that time to tamper with nature. Yeah. And we see, I'm looking for right now, is that Satan shows up in the end in Revelation. He calls down fire from heaven. And he creates these great supernatural events that happen in, okay, right here. I just found it. Revelation 13, um, 11, 12, and 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth that had horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority on the first beast in his presence and makes the earth, makes, no choice here, right? Makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So, we still have worship being an issue all the way into the future, a future of us, not just Israel, future. Is we have worship and force of worship, and it's Satan. Let's remember this. This is Satan forcing people to worship. It's inhabitants of the first, uh, the, the, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. So, and it says that this is deceiving people. So is it possible? Yes. In fact, it's, it's told that this is literally what will happen. So there had to be some, at this point, on Mount Carmel, a supernatural intervention where God says to Satan, nope, you can't make fire come down here. That one's off the table. Yep. You're not allowed. I've always wished that I could see that entire thing with along the human layer of what everyone saw, along with the supernatural layer of what was actually happening. I've always thought that would be a really cool thing to be able to see, the unedited version, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it comes Elijah's turn. And I'm guessing some of this must have been happening through the day because we're told that Elijah builds an altar from 12 stones. And it sounds like he's basically he's basically by himself. We've had all these prophets and people and whatever dancing around for Baal. But it sounds like Elijah's basically doing this on his own. Builds an altar from 12 stones to represent the, the children of Israel. Uh, prepares a bull. Lays it on the wood. And he doubles down. He has it drenched with water three times, even filling a trench around the wall, the, the altar with water. Uh, I mean, if there's anything to try to pre- that would prevent fire, it'd be you know completely drenching it with water. 
And then it says at the time of the evening sacrifice, and I think that must have been pointed out specifically in here as as some significance. But at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah begins to pray to God. And I saw this as a a very a, a, a contrast of the manic display from the prophets of Baal in, in how you know how how dynamic their attempts were all day long. And it sounds like Elijah just very quietly has built this altar gotten everything prepared, had water put over it, but now he's just he just prays. Uh, and, and it sounds like a rather peaceful uh, thing happening here. And then we're told fire of the Lord consumes the sacrifice, but not just the sacrifice. It comes down and it burns the bowl, the wood. It burns up the stones, the dirt, it all the water, everything. I mean, it sounds to me like there's just a crater in the ground left when God shows up and and displays his power versus all of this uh all of this craziness that's been happening all day long well, with the prophets of Baal and now Elijah very calmly prays to God and boom you get this this uh huge uh, amazing display of God's power over this on on this uh this sacrifice Leaving, leaving nothing. I mean, leaving practically less than nothing. I can just, I could kind of imagine just the ground sitting there glowing. Maybe you know, dirt just you know, turned to glass underneath it. And uh, this has a huge impact on the people of the area. They, they fall in their places and declare the Lord He is God. I had some notes back here, and I, we just kind of skipped over them. But in twenty one, eighteen twenty one. We've heard this before. Does this sound vaguely familiar to you? When him them chastising the people and saying, you know what? This is what we need to do. If the Lord is a true God, then follow him, but make up your mind. Where oh, have yeah. we heard that before? Me in my house. <laughs> yeah. It's for me and my house. We'll serve the Lord. Yep. You know, but if we look back to the Exodus, when they made the golden um, idol... Wasn't there also a time where they had to say, you know what, this is the Lord. You either follow him or you don't, but you need to make up your mind. Then mm-hmm. the the earth split open, consumed people. That would seem like a replay to me right there. Once yeah. again, calling the nation to decide, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow an idol and a, you know, or Baal in this instance? But you need to make up your mind. You know, once the people once the people finally declare and uh, de- de- you know declare their allegiance here, he calls for them to go seize the prophets of Baal and has them executed. Uh, I don't remember how many there were, but um, four hundred and fifty. Yeah, so that's uh, that's quite that's that's quite the event to happen right there. Uh, let alone all the all the miracle that we've just seen. But now. Elijah tells Ahab to celebrate because rain is coming. Now, there's been no indication of anything like anything like that going to happen, but he tells Ahab that rain is going to come. And he, Elijah goes up again on Mount Carmel and bows and prays. Uh, and he has a servant with him, and he has a servant looking towards the sea. Seven times this happens. Go look, you know, go look, go look, go look. And the seventh time, the servant sees a tiny little cloud, it says, coming out over the seas, as small as a man's hand. I take that to be probably if you're standing there looking out 
and hold your arm hand at arm's length and you know this cloud that you see off in the distance but heavy rain comes and ahab leaves for jezreel and elijah actually runs ahead of him to beat him to jezreel i think he's leading the horses it's um, yes. it's a supernatural manifestation and let's think about this is that ahab has been the the troubler of israel has led the nation into this apostasy and Ahab takes the humble role of a servant leading the horses of the king back. Now, this is this is where a lot of people would put on the big hat, you know, and start walking tall and strutting. And that's not what Elijah does. And, he, and, and when he gets there, he doesn't even go inside. He sleeps outside the wall, wraps up and sleeps outside in the rain, I guess, or under an overhang. It's just a very different way of doing things than then uh, our society says it's like oh yeah once you throw down and you're the you're the top one now you strut and he didn't do that yeah so here again this looks like another another miracle where we've had no rain no water nothing for a long time we don't get a little you know a little sprinkle we get a we get a torrential downpour with you know dark clouds sounds like almost the kind of kind of uh, storm where you might be ready to hunker down in your basement just uh, just in case you know now, Ahab goes and tells Jezebel about what Elijah has done, especially about executing all these prophets. Now, I mean, so I think from reading and from what we've talked about here, it sounds like Jezebel really is kind of the instigator here of all of this Baal worship. And so for her to hear that all of these prophets have been killed essentially at Elijah's hand, uh, that doesn't go. That doesn't go over well. And Jezebel threatens to kill Elijah, and Elijah runs. He just takes off, goes to run, runs to Beersheba uh, in Judah. So this is a this is a ways away. I mean, Judah sounds like it's probably a safe place to go, and so that's where he heads off. But he, in this case, it's it's after all he's been through, he is so distraught over this, and it's interesting that he would run and hide because. In his distress, now he's like ready to die. He's like, oh, it'd probably just be better if I just die now, you know. But he gets encouraged. An angel comes to him and feeds him and encourages him. You know, in the past, when he was when he ran and hide, when he ran and hid, he was told by God to go run and hide. It didn't sound like he was told by God here to run and hide. He just uh, kind of freaked out and took off. But he he gets he gets encouragement. And he ends up traveling to Horeb. Spends the night in a cave there. And God comes to him. Says, what are you doing here? And Elijah's like, well, I've been zealous because the Israel, the children of Israel have forsaken you. Uh, and I'm the only prophet left. And they want to kill me. And God comes back to him. He says, you know what? Just go out and stand on the mountain here. And this is another one of those cool stories. Stand on the mountain here. And so he's, Elijah's there and this strong wind comes, followed by an earthquake, and that's followed by fire. And we're told that God was not in any of those, which is interesting because it sounds like it's probably him maybe making these things happen. But these huge displays, these huge, loud, violent, in-your-face displays, it says this isn't where God was. But then he says there was a, st it says there was a still, small voice. And then, and this is where God shows up. 
So I, I guess I think of this whole running away episode with Elijah. I guess I think of that, you know, this has gone on for over three years and Elijah has been the point person between God and God's fallen nation. And he's had to go hide in a foreign, you know, a foreign place and hide in the wilderness and all of these things. And I think this is, and then it all finally culminates in a big showdown and God wins. And if, and if you can think of that whole thing from Elijah's, from he's still a human, like he's still just a dude. And if you can think of that from his point of view, like that had to be such relief that the three years of hell was over. And then what's the first thing that happens? Jezebel's coming for him. And I don't think that he made the right decision in running, but how can you not understand that? Like, does it never end? Does it never end? Mm -hmm. Like, you talk about feeling isolated and like, there was just this big triumph of God in front of everyone. And now we're back to this. Like, is there no end to the, the pursuit of, you know, pursuit of evil coming after me? Yep, I hear you, Karen. And he, he, okay, to that point, exactly to that point, and, and this is, you know, both of our, our human frailty to that and what God's power is. James 5, 17. Yeah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I, that's pretty humbling. I mean, it says, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He's saying, James is just saying, Elijah is not that different from you and me. And if we really take that for what it says, that is an incredible challenge, both that we have the opportunity to connect with God. We have opportunity to to act and speak for God when he calls us, not out of turn. Because remember, every time Elijah did this, it was God came to him first and said, this is specifically what you're supposed to do, is that we have that opportunity and to this point that Karen's bringing up, which I, I resonate with it. I absolutely, I do. When he says, I'm, I'm man, can't, I'm just, okay, it's enough, right? Can I be done now? And that's echoes of Job because Job prays the same thing. And God says, no, I'm not done with your life yet. It's wonderful that we are called to be part of God's plan. And it's, it's, it's inspiring and it's awe-inspiring when we get to step up and do something like that. It's also terrifying and pushes normal humans past what they're really able to handle very well. You know, to take a little human and put them into a supernatural calling, that's going to push that human. And if you think about Jesus when he was here on earth, like Garden of Gethsemane, what's, what, is he, what is he continually going and looking for? He's alternating between going to his father for comfort and going to his friends for comfort. And only one of them was there for him. You know, that's just, this is tough stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, God has another task here for Elijah. He tells him to return to the wilderness of Damascus. And there he is supposed to anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Interesting that God is is having um, he he's taking such a making himself so so visible I guess in Syria and taking a hand on this 
Go ahead, Karen. Uh, well, we missed one very important moment in the in the thing where God is speaking to Elijah on the side of the mountain. And that is where he sends an angel to give him food and drink. So Elijah lays down and takes himself a little nap after running away because that's exhausting work. And he's been scared and he's running on adrenaline. And then an angel wakes him up and says, here's some food and drink. And then he takes another nap. So I often feel like that. Sometimes I'm hangry. Sometimes I need a nap before I can actually hear what God is trying to say to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God um, is actually in patience. He de- he deals with, um, he, he works with it. He, he allows, he works with Elijah's um, uh, depression, which I think is exactly what's going on here. Mm-hmm. A couple, th- couple mm-hmm. of amazing things here is that this bread, when he gives it this meal, it's a miraculously provided meal, not by ravens. He goes for, on a 40-day and 40-night hike on that one meal. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget that the supernatural is very real in this story. And he still suffers with struggles with depression. And he still struggles with, um, which I think should give us just a little bit of grace for ourselves. Like when things are tough and we feel down, it's like, oh, no, everyone who's in touch with God is a total hero all the time. That's that's just not how it plays out. No. Not even here. And Elijah says several times, I, even I only am left. He says that twice in this conversation with God. And then God in verse 18 says to, to Elijah, he says, um, he's given him all this mission to do. And I'll let Matt go there. But God, God kind of collects him and says, hey, wait a minute, dude. I will leave 7,000 in Israel. That's the apostate nation who have not bowed down to Baal. Because sometimes we feel like, I'm the only one doing the right thing. I'm the only one. And God is saying, no, you're not the only one. Yeah. 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 So he sends, he sends him to anoint Hazael, king over Syria, which was interesting to me that, that God would take this, this hand in Syria like this. But more importantly, at least more importantly in my eyes, it sounds like he sounds he sends him to anoint Jehu, uh, son of Nimshi, it says, as king over Israel, and anoint Elisha as a prophet to to essentially replace Elijah. Don't get Elisha and Elijah uh, mixed up. That's easy to do. Uh, I, I guarantee you, when we start talking Elisha and Elijah, I will get them mixed up down the road. He finds Elisha. Well, the, the point of between Jehu and let's see, Hazael and Jehu and Elisha, all the, they're kind of going to work together here. It sounds like it says if, uh, uh, you know, if somebody escapes Hazael, then Jehu will get them. If, if J, if they escape Jehu, then Elisha will get them. But Elijah goes and he finds Elisha plowing in a field and throws his mantle on him. Throws his mantle on him, which is kind of like an invitation. And Elisha, I guess he's willing, willing enough, but he asks if he could tell his parents goodbye, and Elijah agrees to this. That was sort of an interesting contrast to stories down the road with Jesus, where people would like, I want to, you know, can I bury my parents, or can I do this, can I do that? And Jesus would be like, well... No, <laughs> you know, if you want to follow me, you're going to follow me here. But uh, 
that's not the case here for for Elijah. Elijah's like, yeah, that's fine. Go go tell your parents goodbye. And Elisha kind of sounds like he had get, sort of throws himself a going away party. He says he slaughters the yoke of oxen, boils their flesh all over the wood from the oxen's equipment, and feeds it to the people. And where we leave off now is Elisha. See, Elisha follows Elijah and becomes his servant. And that will play out more in the reading as we as we uh, move along in the future. Um, but we're going to see this passing of this, uh, well, I guess, of the mantle, right? Right. Uh, between the two of them. So some interesting stories there, especially those stories of Elijah and the things that he did. Uh, some really dynamic stories that we've been told and, and God's power being shown through through Elijah and what he does and what he did. And, you know, this whole nation of Israel, it's still in a turmoil as we read, keep reading in the future. Next week, we're going to be reading more about more kings and more kings and more kings. And they just one after the other. And um, and uh, it uh, it just moves, just keeps moving quickly between them. I think that is going to wrap it up for this week. Next week, we're going to get into First Kings chapter 20 through 22, which I believe will finish out the book. And we're going to read Second Chronicles 18 through 20. While you're waiting for that, you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Look for us on Facebook. Make sure you share the podcast to reach out to your friends and families and neighbors. And make sure you subscribe so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Now, Mount Carmel, it's not something you're going to find in Willy Wonka's factory. Okay, that was stupid.